Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Mayors, companies vow to act on climate even as U.S. leaves Paris Accord. That's a recent headline from NPR. What's your reaction to President Trump's decision to remove the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord? What will be the economic impact, the environmental impact? What should be done going forward? We're going to talk about this for the hour here on Access Utah. Our guests include in studio physicist Robert Davies. Welcome back to the program. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Robert Davis will be with us for the hour, and we're bringing on shortly a representative from the uh, Climate Leadership Council. It's their senior vice president, Greg Bertelson. And Mr. Bertelson, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be with you. Appreciate you being with us. You can comment right now. Uh, your question or comment, uh, very much appreciated. We really want to know what you think about this. Uh, at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We're on Twitter as well, at upraxcess. And you can call us to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Let me start on this with uh, Mr. Bertelson. Tell us first what the Climate Leadership Council is. Sure, Tom, and thanks again for having me on. So the Climate Leadership Council is a global uh, uh, think tank. Uh, we are organized with the mission of convening uh, thought leaders uh, and policy experts to find a policy solution to, to, to addressing climate change. We formally launched in February of this year with a well-publicized meeting with the White House to present our carbon dividends solution. Uh, our plan was authored by some of the most well-respected uh, members of the Republican Party, um, some of the most well-respected conservative economists in the country, um, former Secretaries of State George Schultz and James Baker, uh, former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson, uh, Gregory Mankiw, and Martin Feldstein, two of the most well-respected economists in the country, came together uh, and developed a, a, a plan that's designed uh, not only around uh, the conservative principles of, of less government and free market principles, but also one that will address the underlying issue of climate change, one that will drive emissions uh, to levels that, that science tells us they need to go. I want to follow up and uh, hear a little bit more about the plan, but uh, first of all, I want to get reaction from uh, each of uh, my guests here. So first of all, Mr. Bertelson, your general reaction, uh, the reaction of the Climate Leadership Council to President Trump's decision to, to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord. Leading up to the decision, we were fairly vocal in our support of the U.S. remaining in the agreement. Uh, we continue to believe that it's in the best interest of U.S. businesses, of the country, of workers, of the economy, to remain at the table to be a part of these global negotiations. But moving forward, we believe there's an enormous opportunity that still remains for the country. Uh, whether we remained in the Paris Agreement or exited, as we ultimately did, we were always going to need a, a policy solution from Congress, from, from a White House, to develop new policies to, to address the issue. And, and that, that issue remains, that, that need remains. And so we are now moving forward in, in an era in which we are no longer part of the agreement, or at least we're, we're headed down the path of no longer being part of the agreement. That will actually take a few years to, to go into effect. And so now it's time for policymakers to step up uh, and develop uh, a policy for the U.S. that that is pro-growth, pro-jobs, addresses the underlying issue, um, and uh, shows U.S. leadership. This is an issue that we have, frankly, led on in the past. 
U.S. emissions uh, have, have been reduced more so than any other country in the world. Uh, but we need to build on that progress. We need to build on that, on those efforts. And that's what, that's exactly what our plan does. It, it provides an opportunity for the U.S. to continue to be the leaders in reducing emissions, to go beyond what we have already done, but do so in a way that does not ask the American worker, the American family, to shoulder the brunt of the burden, uh, and does it in a way that ensures our businesses, our manufacturers, will remain competitive, that they will have the certainty that they need to make the investments in new technologies and new solutions that ultimately are going to be what, what solves this issue. Robert Davies, your general reaction to President Trump's decision? Well, uh, I think I would echo uh, uh, what Mr. Bertelson uh, just mentioned, is that I, I think uh, certainly, and most in the uh, climate science community for sure, felt that it was in the best interest of the United States to remain. Uh, and I would echo that, and for the U.S. to play a role a leadership role in, in moving the world forward and addressing this, this critical issue of, of global climate change. So uh, the notion of removing us from the agreement or making moves to remove us uh, from the agreement, I think, was, was a bad move for the United States, a bad move for the nation, a bad move for uh, everyone on the planet. Um, but I would also uh, argue uh, or reiterate Mr. Bertelson's notion that there are many paths forward, there are many things happening, and this was one, a very important piece of the puzzle, but not the only piece. Mm. Mr. Burleson, you mentioned, I want to follow up with, with this, you say uh, we should have uh, solutions to this problem, but uh, workers should not uh, bear an undue uh, burden. Um, and so you and you say your plan uh, would, would accomplish that. Uh, tell us a little bit more about this uh, carbon tax, carbon dividends plan. Our plan is is based on a $40 a ton carbon fee that would be assessed at the entry point of fossil fuels coming into the economy, so when they're mined from the ground or when they're imported from other countries. Uh, that fee would then trickle through the economy, sending a price signal to businesses and consumers to adjust their behavior to activities that emit less carbon emissions and, and ultimately address climate change. The revenue from that fee, 100% of it, would be returned to the U.S. public, to U.S. households, in the form of a monthly dividend check. So to give you a sense of what that means for the average family, a family of four would receive about $2,200 a year in the form of monthly dividend checks. Uh, Now, a really interesting part of our plan, and this has been uh, studied and and there's been a few reports, one of them by uh, the Department of Treasury, shows that 70% of U.S. households would actually come out ahead under our, our program, and, and those at the lowest end of the income distribution scale would actually do best. Uh, so you've got the carbon fee with the revenues returned to the U.S. public, and then we have uh, programs, mechanisms in place to ensure that, that U.S. businesses are not put at a competitive disadvantage. Uh, most importantly, with the carbon fee in place, driving emissions to levels that would have put us on path to achieving our Paris target uh, and on, on a path to achieving where, uh, where science says that we need to go to lower emissions. You no longer need the, uh, the command and control regulatory approach that currently exists, and one that really is just leading to this sort of uh, nonstop era of regulatory uncertainty in which you have one administration come into office and adopting regulations, in the most recent case, of course, it was the Obama administration with, with their regulations, uh, only to have the next repeal them. 
And for businesses, this is a no-win situation. On the one hand, you have the threat of additional regulations that are highly inefficient. And on the other hand, you, you are left without certainty that those regulations will remain in place so that you can provide the necessary investments to do your business, to innovate, to develop new technologies. With our program, you would remove those the, the uncertainty of that regulatory back and forth, and in its place, you would put in the carbon fee, which would, again, address the underlying issue of lowering emissions. In fact, it would do it in a more efficient, more effective way than the regulatory process, while ensuring the economy is not harmed in the process, while ensuring that businesses remain competitive, uh, and while ensuring that, that workers and, and households aren't shouldering the burden. Robert Davis, what do you think about this idea of carbon tax and dividend? Well, uh, it's certainly in terms of addressing uh, what we've in the past considered pollutants, um, this is a proven method for uh, moving free societies forward. Uh, so it's been used in the past, uh, examples all the way from things like leaded gasoline or lead in paints to um, chlorofluorocarbons with the ozone uh, hole uh, that began in the 1980s. So this is a it's a it's a good plan, I think, largely because we have empirical evidence to suggest this is a kind of a, approach that works, and in fact, typically works much faster than uh, projections suggest. So once you, uh, as as the gentleman said, have some regulatory certainty, then um, market economies can. Uh, can move forward with confidence, and, and that's happened many times in the past with um, this this category of, of problem. So it's a it's a good move, mm. Mr. Bertelson. I want to um, I want to ask you a, kind of a conservative critique. Uh, I don't know if you've gotten this, but uh, but a, a carbon tax, uh, of course, removing the regulation or reducing regulation, uh, very much in the conservative wheelhouse. But uh, carbon tax, would that not disproportionately uh, target some industries? You know, coal, for example, would that not, um, you know, potentially reduce the number of coal jobs, uh, jobs in, in in some of those industries? The the purpose of the pr of the purpose of having a fee is so that you send a price signal throughout the economy to all industries to account for carbon emissions, and so that companies can adjust behavior. It, it provides a long-term path of certainty so, so businesses in any industrial sector can understand what the, um, what the additional costs of certain production and certain fuels will be, and so that they can take the time to make informed decisions on how to adjust behavior uh, in the future. Ultimately, this is going to be a this is a this is a opportunity, not a threat for the economy. This is an opportunity for new technologies to continue to emerge. There's enormous potential for uh, new markets in the low carbon economy, both in the U.S. and around the world, and that's why you saw such an enormous amount of support from the business community for staying in Paris. There is a commitment amongst the business community, of course, to address climate change and lower emissions. But just as important, there's an enormous economic opportunity in these markets, in these technologies. And by putting a price on carbon, you're giving the certainty to businesses to invest in those technologies to ensure that we here in the U.S. are owning the next generation of energy technologies um, and that it's a source of, of strength and growth for the U.S. economy. Mr. Brillis, I know we have to let you go here in a couple of minutes. I want to follow up with this. One of the critiques of the president's move, 
that I've been hearing is that uh, U.S. abdicates a leadership role and potentially endangers uh, the U.S.'s leadership role in um, in the growing market of renewables. Uh, you know, the businesses in in, uh, in that regard, maybe ceding that to China. Well, that was certainly one of the considerations that we made when we uh, rather publicly uh, supported the concept of staying in the deal. And we've seen in the aftermath of the withdrawal, Europe and China start to uh, come to the table to negotiate their own um, agreements around renewable energy technologies and so on. But I, I really want to stress that that, that, not, that we still have an opportunity here. Policymakers still have an opportunity to come to the table to adopt legislation that ensures that we not only address the underlying issue of climate, but have a program in place that allows the U.S. to return its position as a leader in addressing this issue. And from that will give us access to those markets, those technologies uh, that we so desire to own. Well, uh, Mr. Burleson, we'll, uh, we'll let you go here. Um, uh, Senior Vice President with the Climate Leadership Council, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we will have uh, with us remaining uh, physicist Robert Davies. We're talking about the U.S.'s withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord, and we want to know what you think. UPRAxis at gmail.com. UPRAxis at gmail.com is our email. 800-826-1495 is our phone number, 800-826-1495. And uh, we are on Twitter, at UPRAxis. We have a statement from a senatorial candidate that we'll uh, read uh, for you. He has tweeted at us, and uh, we'll have we'll get your reaction. Is uh, this uh, sort of just a sideshow? That's what uh, Rob Bishop, uh, Congressman Bishop, says. How impactful is this? Uh, Mayor Bloomberg has uh, organized uh, an organization uh, with the states and cities. Uh, they say that they're just going to go forward. The U.S. Climate Alliance is what that called. And what are you going to do in your personal life? Uh, how will this affect you? 800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Headspin Events, presenting the 6th Annual Cash Grand Fondo Bike Ride through Cash Valley and ending in downtown Logan, Saturday, July 8th, Registration and information available at cashgrandfondo.com. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. A business leader who built a company came to me complaining, I can't solve all the problems. I just don't have the time. My response was, why are you solving problems? A leader should be a problem clarifier and coach those who stand face-to-face with problems. But good leaders don't solve problems. They help others avoid, prioritize, and yes, sometimes solve problems. It is a real challenge for most of us to let go of the things that we were good at earlier in our careers and move from becoming a problem solver to a problem clarifier. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. 
Mayors, companies vow to act on climate even as U.S. leaves Paris Accord. That's a recent headline from NPR. and We're getting your reaction to President Trump's decision to remove the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord. We're asking you what will be the economic impact, the environmental impact, perhaps the political impact, what should be done going forward. And uh, you can reach us to our email, upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com. Would really love to know what you think. You can call us to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. And we're on Twitter, at upraccess. We have with us uh, physicist Rob Davies uh, in uh, in the studio. Uh, so our previous guest, Rob Davies, uh, Greg Bertelson with the Climate Leadership Council. Uh, he and his organization are framing this in, in a business uh, framework. And we're hearing of many, the business community, by and large, uh, wanted the U.S. to stay in. Right, uh, and that's certainly the case. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, the U.S. Climate Alliance um, initially begun with a collaboration, uh, mayor, former Mayor Bloomberg and governors of uh, California, New York, and Washington has since accumulated, I think, 13 states now are uh, members. Um, hundreds of cities uh, have signed on and many hundreds of businesses. And uh, and as, as the previous guest mentioned, the business community wants uh, clarity on this uh, from a number of standpoints, certainly from their ability to develop their businesses and gain investors, but also from the standpoint of invest, uh, of solving a critical environmental problem. And I think it's worth mentioning with all the economic speak that um, there's a quote from uh, Dennis Meadows, uh, uh, quite a distinguished researcher in the field of complex systems. Um, The environment is the source of all life and every economy. And I think that's something that's uh, basic uh, to keep in mind as we have this discussion, is it's not a question of status quo, not doing anything, or changing uh, as we move forward, say, with the uh, Paris Accord, Paris Climate Accord, um, changes are coming, and those changes are going – they're already here. Uh, they're big, and they're going to get bigger. We have every reason to expect that that's true. So from a risk management standpoint, um, business, along with communities, want to know that we're taking steps to meet a very critical risk. And so I think that was behind wanting to stay in the Paris Accord. Hmm. I want to uh, get your reaction uh, to the, the president's framework. His framework was almost entirely economic. Uh, he he alleged, he stated, that uh, the uh, U.S. would lose billions of dollars if we stayed in the, in the Paris Accord, uh, lose a lot of trillions, was actually, trillions was his assertion, uh, yes. was, and that uh, we would l- lose many jobs. He, famous, he framed this mm-hmm. as, you know, I I'm, I'm, was elected to represent Pittsburgh and not Paris. Of course, there's been pushback on that, that <laughs> Pittsburgh has moved on from where it, what it used to be as a steel town. But your general reaction to the economic framework? Well, uh, I think it's a framework that speaks to a lot of people. Uh, it's, it's one of the ways that any policy, uh, public policy, affects us is economically. Um, I'll simply make a couple of comments, and one can find uh, any number of very detailed critiques of the president's remarks from last week as as he withdrew the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord uh, just about universally, uh, you know, sort of a line-by-line, paragraph-by-paragraph analysis. One finds um, um, misunderstandings and misstatements um, throughout uh, his remarks. And with respect to the economic analyses in particular, um, 
one of the most salient, I think, critiques is simply that what he, uh, to the extent that he's quoting actual analysis, which is dubious to begin with, um, he's quoting essentially cost analysis. And of course, uh, one of the one of the cornerstones of economic analysis is, is adding the benefits, so the cost benefit. So what we find is an assumption that nothing else changes uh, in his in in the uh, particular economic analysis he was citing. Basically, took the premise that nothing else changes, uh, and we stay with the Paris Climate Accord. And of course, that was never the intent of the Paris Climate Accords. It's intended to be a starting place, not an ending place. It's a first step or or a next step. It's not the last step. And so the idea is uh, the uh, the nation and the world adjusts as we move forward, and we see what's working and what's not. So uh, the the premises of of the economic analyses that the president was quoting were uh, enormously flawed to begin with. And uh, misstating and misrepresenting the the intent of the Paris Accords, and so um, that as a basis for withdrawing really doesn't hold a lot of uh, a lot of water. Mm. Do you, uh, how significant is this? Do you think is it is it purely abdication of leadership? Because you know the the U.S. will not be able to withdraw until 2020, and um, and many states and cities are going forward anyway. Well, I think. Uh, you make a, a good point, and the previous guest did as well, and uh, it's worth reiterating that many, uh, many, many efforts are underway uh, internationally as well as locally and regionally. Um, and the, As we've already mentioned, the U.S. Climate Alliance is now 1,400 states, cities, businesses, big businesses. We're talking Walmarts and IBMs and Apples and Googles, all saying that they are committed to achieving the aims of the Paris uh, Accord. Um, and so, uh, so that none of that stops. Uh, and in fact, I would say that perhaps one of the um, one of the uh, ancillary effects of this move by President Trump is to, in fact, accelerate those other attempts and, and re-energize them. And, and um, so that, in a sense, is a silver lining to this. That said, um, what has to happen? to meet the goals of the Paris Accord, and which is simply to hold overall warming of the planet to well below 2 degrees Celsius uh, from pre-industrial temperatures uh, and, and with a goal of really 1.5 degrees Celsius, keeping in mind we've already warmed 1.1 degree Celsius. Um, what has to happen is, is um, certainly global. Um, it's our rowboat is sinking and everybody needs to bail. And so uh, to have the full-throated support of the world's largest economy, the United States, and the world's foremost democracy, the United States, I think is important, uh, certainly symbolically, but symbols matter. And not just symbolically, because it demonstrates a commitment on the part of this enormous economy that this is where we're going. And that allows uh, us as a society and certainly the business world to, uh, it sets a ground rule and says, okay, this is the ground rule and this is how we move forward. And as long as there's any level of uncertainty in that, which which this move by the president does, I think that weakens that effect. And so um, uh, the U.S.'s government's participation in this international effort, I think, is incredibly important.
Let's go to an email from Charles. Uh, Charles uh, echoes something you, you just said, uh, Rob Davies. Uh, he says, the Citizens Climate Lobby is a bipartisan organization that advocates a carbon-free and dividend plan. There are chapters all over the country, including in Utah, uh, Salt Lake, Park City, Orem, Ogden, St. George, and Logan. I will say this for our current president. He's given a boost to our membership. I hope some listeners of this station will consider joining with us. That's uh, Charles uh, Ashurst, and uh, he's uh, touting the Citizens' Climate uh, Lobby. So thank you, uh, Charles, for that uh, that comment. So, Rob Davies, uh, you, you say it's silver lining. Some people have been talking about Charles does as well as uh, maybe a boost in energy to groups like this. Well, it, absolutely, and I think that's been happening uh, not just since the Paris Accord, but since the election and since a number of the uh, moves the president has made with respect to uh, the environment and climate. Um, and so uh, so that continues and is amplified with, with this particular move mm. as well. I want to have, uh, get your response. So, uh, I'm going to go soon here to a uh, letter that was referred to us from uh, Twitter. He uh, tweeted at us, this is a uh, candidate for Senate here in Utah on the, uh, for, uh, as a Democrat. So we'll read that later. I want to uh, get a response from you, Rob Davies, to something that Representative Chris Stewart uh, is quoted as saying in the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, his response to the president's withdrawal from the, from the Paris Accord is uh, he cites a Stanford study. Uh, which uh, which he characterizes as saying that uh, the study as saying that uh, there would only be a savings of 0.07 uh, increase in in Fahrenheit in in uh, you know temperature savings for uh, you know what he cites as being uh, big economic losses and so he he he's not in support of. Uh, of Paris, and he's, I think he is in support of the, our withdrawal from Paris. Uh, what do you say about the Stanford study? So I'm not familiar with the particular study that he's quoting without, without knowing uh, who it is and what the authors are. I, I, um, I suspect uh, he's looking at uh, modeling of various scenarios moving forward under various carbon scenarios. So this is what we do in the climate physics world is look at different uh, emission scenarios moving forward and then seeing where that takes us uh, through various points in time in terms of uh, uh, global average temperature change. Um, let me reiterate that the Paris Accords were never intended to be an action on their own. They're intended to be essentially a, a motivating action. So along with uh, the what are called the, uh, the nationally determined contributions, each nation's commitments to reducing a their their carbon emissions by a certain amount, that's expected to uh, generate additional momentum. And so, again, it's a first step. It's like saying the first step uh, on a journey up to Everest isn't going to take you to the top, and that's certainly true, um, but it's it was never intended to. You were intended to take a next step and a next step. So that sort of analysis I find um, at best naive and, and generally disingenuous, uh, sort of intellectually dishonest. So, so uh, as we move forward, um, the 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 uh, the um, benefits to the climate uh, accumulate. That said, I'll say that there are a number of modeling studies that I am familiar with that suggest that with the nationally determined contributions that were that are now a part of the the Paris Climate Accord. Um, as you project forward from a business as usual case to uh, the emissions under the accord, uh, show reductions by the end of the century of between one and one and a half degrees Celsius. So uh, the the point zero seven, I'm just not familiar with where that's coming mm -hmm. from. Is that going to be enough? 
one to one point five, you know, reduction, or that the target's two uh, two Celsius, but really right. one point five. Well, by what, when I say uh, mm. one point five, I mean that the temperature we would have been at if we hadn't okay. done this, versus the temperature we would be at if we just implemented the accords would be a difference of one point five. And you, I'm glad you asked the question. The answer is no. It's not enough to meet the actual uh, goals of the Paris uh, Agreement. Uh, which is to hold total warming to only 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius. And no, that's not enough. Uh, everybody understands that's not enough, but again, everybody understands that this is a first step mm. uh, and a major step. It's the first time that we've had essentially every nation on the planet agreeing that, yes, this is a goal, uh, and and we're uh, committing large resources to achieving that goal. It's also important to point out that the Paris Accords are non-binding. There's no enforcement mechanisms and that nations who signed up for a certain number, a certain amount of of, uh, emissions reduction. So in the case of the United States, we committed to reducing our emissions to 26 to 28 percent below our 2005 emissions by the year 2025. So in the next eight years, um, and we're already uh, partway to that goal. So that goal under the Paris Accord is adjustable. The, the nation can say, well, we want to increase it or we want to decrease it. And there are no enforcement mechanisms. So the notion that this accord um, committed us to some sort of um, enforceable actions that were going to uh, affect us detrimentally is, is simply incorrect. Mm. So uh, it is notable that you know from Kyoto to Paris, uh, the, you know they dropped the teeth, right? They dropped the in, in enforcement, and went more to the quote unquote name and shame. Um, I, I guess that that's sort of a you know s- social <laughs> enforcement <laughs> mechanism. And certainly in in our own communities, we know that there's a lot of power in that. And for any nation that wants to claim any kind of uh, mantle of leadership, I think, in the world, it's uh, it's going to be impossible without being uh, a part of this. And certainly the, the point was made earlier that it does damage the U.S. not simply uh, from the standpoint of climate change, which is hugely important, but we've now, you've got a major international agreement in which every nation on the planet has signed on, save three now. Uh, Nicaragua, who didn't sign on because they said it wasn't aggressive enough. Syria, who's in the midst of a of a civil war, and now the United States are the only nations on the planet who are not involved. And so you've got this uh, very large international agreement, and to have the United States out of it, I think, initially commit and then pull out makes other nations think of us as unreliable with whatever respect to whatever agreements we make, whether they're trade agreements or uh, human rights agreements, uh, security agreements. I think all of that gets thrown into question when you, uh, uh, when you, you know, pull back on, on such a large commitment. We are talking about the uh, Paris Climate Accord. President uh, Trump, of course, uh, no doubt you've heard uh, last week, uh, announced that he was pulling the U.S. out of uh, the accord. Um, really, you know, the, the, because of the uh, the agreement, and I think there's a one-year waiting period for people who want to, or countries that want to withdraw. It's it's 2020 before the U.S. really. It's actually, a, out, right? for all intents and purposes, it's a four-year period before mm-hmm. you can officially withdraw. But once again, the notion of withdrawing is essentially nonsensical because it uh, it from an international standpoint because it's there it was non-binding to begin with. I think the uh, more likely reason for doing this is to lay the groundwork for pulling back on the clean power plan, things like um, uh, auto uh, 
vehicle standards and emission standards, um, uh, which are a key part of the U.S.'s plan to meet our Paris commitments. But th- these are internal uh, policy mechanisms that are not set by the international community or enforceable by the international community. I suspect that's more likely what's going on. The president has made moves to uh, to pull back on these other internal policy mechanisms as well. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. We're talking with physicist uh, Rob Davies, and uh, you can join the program as well. We'd love to know what you think. Uh, do you join Charles in, uh, in joining up in uh, organizations? Uh, are you making changes in your personal life? Is this uh, top of mind? Uh, some polls are suggesting that... Uh, the uh, while the public is uh, is generally supportive of uh, you know believes in climate change supportive of measures to uh, reduce uh, carbon emissions that it's not their top issue and do I want to put that out to you is this one of your top issues or is it kind of near the bottom and uh, want to want to hear your reasoning what you think about this and your general take on the president's removal of the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord and when we come back I want to talk about California. Um, so it's kind of a sore spot for, you know, other states in the West. But uh, California is famously a leader in several areas, including this area. Governor Brown just went to China and you know, signed his state up to an agreement with, with, with China. And it's interesting to look at uh, California as a kind of a test case. They have some fairly strict, you know, climate laws in place, and their economy is booming. So people on one side use that as a as a as a good example. I want to talk about that and and some comments from Representative Bishop and from a spokeswoman for uh, Governor Herbert when we come back more following this break. The 2017 Best of State Awards were announced recently with Utah State University Extension named as one of the winners for its adult education programs taught throughout the state of Utah both on and off USU campuses. USU Extension provides a variety of courses covering topics such as gardening, food preservation, financial readiness, and child care. USU Extension shares the Best of State Award with the Western Governors University and the Ogden Weber Applied Technology College. LAX, Los Angeles International Airport, is huge and in the middle of a huge upgrade. Almost every terminal either has been or is underway with a renovation program. I'm Kai Rizdal, the CEO of LAX. We'll have that story for you. The numbers from Wall Street and the rest of the day's business news as well. Next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment. We're talking about the Paris Climate Agreement and the fact that the U.S. is getting out. President Trump announced that uh, last week. Uh, What will be the economic impact, environmental impact? What about you personally? Where does this rank? Uh, I've been interested, uh, Rob Davies, to see some polls uh, which suggest that uh, Americans are generally... Uh, supportive of reducing uh, carbon emissions, uh, generally have a concern about the climate, but that if you rank the issues, it's you know it's jobs, it's economy, it's it's my personal paycheck, it's it's these things, and then and then uh, climate generally ranks uh, near the bottom. Well, until recently, uh, actually, I saw a poll just two days ago that put it uh, at number one, and. Um, this, uh, I think, is because of uh, another perhaps silver lining of 
of the uh, the move by the president, which has put this topic at the top of the headlines. Um, and it's not been getting the press that it, it needs in terms of the, the level of importance that it is in our society. And so I, I think that uh, as long as we were in a going, moving in a direction that people generally perceived as a good direction, uh, which uh, was under the Obama administration, things like the Clean Power Plan, increased uh, vehicle efficiency and uh, signing on to the Paris Climate Accord, I think people didn't put it at the top of the list. But now that uh, there's this real move to regress on that, uh, it's percolated right back up to the top. It's important to note that it's not just general agreement, but very strong agreement throughout the country. Uh, Even in the reddest of red states, uh, uh, there is strong support here in Utah, almost uh, two in three people, 62%. Uh, want to remain in the Paris Accords and believe that reducing carbon emissions should be a priority. And so this is definitely a move that that is strongly against popular opinion. Um, Off-air, you you, uh, mentioned, you mused, Rob Davies, about uh, Utah joining the U.S. Climate Alliance. So we can throw that out for listeners. Should the Utah join the U.S. Climate Alliance? You, I assume you think we should. Well, absolutely. I mean, um, I think every state should be a member of the U.S. Climate Alliance. Your previous guest uh, made the business case for it, the economic case for it. And I think here in Utah we have uh, an amazing framework in place to make just incredible cro- progress on this issue should we choose. And so uh, if our governor, if our legislature wanted to move us in that direction, uh, give us a leg up with clean energy technology, with clean energy jobs. We are the, the and, and one enormous benefit of this, I think, is really quite straightforward to see. Here in Utah, we have uh, a number of community, communities heavily dependent on fossil, fossil extraction, carbon extraction uh, industry, uh, both uh, natural gas and oil, coal, and uh, the, uh, the nation's first tar sands as well. The writing is on the wall. This, these are the fuels. This is the energy of the past. And uh, that's not being dictated by governments. That's being dictated by business. Uh, we're moving well away from that. There are now something on the order of eight times as many jobs in the United States in the clean energy sector as there as there are in fossil fuels. And so... Uh, here in Utah, we need to uh, make plans. We need to help our communities who are heavily dependent on these fuels start to, uh, on these industries, start to plan for a new economy. And we don't do that by uh, by keeping our heads in the sand and pretending like we're coal is going to make a comeback uh, or fossil fuels are going to make a comeback. They are not. They are on their way out. Um, they're not going away immediately, but we need to, uh, you know, the, the direction is phasing those industries and those jobs out and helping those communities figure out what is the next generation of, of workers and economies in those communities going to be based on. And so I think once you commit to saying, yes, this is where we're going, that's when those things really get figured out. And, and here in Utah, uh, we need to do that. We need some progress, though, because uh, the legislature this past session uh, yet again refused to even acknowledge the existence of climate change. And I think uh, we as Utahns need to press back on that extremely hard. It's putting us at great risk. And uh, this comment that's just come in uh, is very apropos to what you just said. This is from Alec. Uh, by the way, you can email us as well, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We have another 15 minutes left in the program. We'd love to know what you think. I'm throwing some questions out to you. Should the U.S. be in or out of the Paris Climate Accord? Should the U.S., should Utah join the uh, U.S. Climate Alliance? 
and uh, how 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 is this affecting you personally? Where does this rank? Climate, where does this rank on your personal list of priorities? I uh, would love to hear your story, your comment at upraccess at gmail.com. Or you can call us to 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Uh, this is Alec. Alec says, I have heard it said before and strongly believe that our phrasing on these issues of science is detrimental. These are issues of fact and proven theory. These aren't opinions or dogma. One doesn't choose to believe in science the way one chooses a religion. A person either understands it or doesn't. A better way to put it, instead of saying people believe in the science, would be to say they either understand or do not. Someone can choose to believe in a god. A person can understand climate science, chemistry, vaccines, evolution, etc. It is strongly the media's responsibility to keep people aware of these that these facts are not truly up for debate. That's uh, Alec. Uh, that is a good point. The way we talk about these things is very important. The way we frame these things is is very important. Um, so your your reaction? Well, a- absolutely. We need, a, as from a public policy standpoint, we need to be able to move forward from a base level of information. And uh, this is how we uh, this is how we address politics. Is certainly necessary. Politics is how we collectively address risk. And but you have to move forward from a base level of accepted knowledge. And an example I, I sometimes use is the notion of of addressing something like Zika. In Miami last year, they had a, an outbreak, and they convened uh, city leaders from the business community, uh, citizens, and uh, policymakers to figure out what they were going to do about this outbreak. There were questions of spraying for mosquitoes, of quarantines, uh, of uh, free screenings. And they made some difficult choices that some people didn't like, in particular quarantining certain neighborhoods, which uh, certainly adversely affected the businesses in those neighborhoods. But the the point to be made here is nobody showed up to those meetings uh, questioning the existence of the Zika virus, the questioning the notion that it was a virus, questioning the notion that it was transmitted by mosquitoes. All of those things were established fact uh, scientifically with lots of lines of evidence backing them up. And from that, they were able to move forward to make good public policy. And uh, to the extent that certain uh, members of the community were affected adversely, say business communities, uh, the the community could also take that into account in the policy and say, okay, we will reimburse you for for some of the losses you've had. That's an example of effective public policymaking. And uh, climate change at the moment in the United States, nationally, federally, is an example of quite the opposite, where you can't even get uh, one of the major parties to agree that you've got a particular problem. And you're certainly never going to have a productive policy discussion on solving a problem that one uh, side of the discussion refuses to acknowledge mm-hmm. exists. Um, so I want to follow up. Where do you think we are with that, uh, Dr. Davies? Um, you know, to use Alex, uh, follow Alex's advice, if a significant number of people in the U.S., and especially in one politi- political party, doesn't understand accept the you know the 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 scientific consensus then uh that's a problem to to creating action so how to bridge that divide how to make progress well if you look at the polling uh we find out that certainly that's true there are there is a segment of our society that does not accept this science uh there's a whole field of psychology that looks at why it is we choose to believe the things that we do uh accept information or not and without going into that, we'll simply say that um, 
the changing minds that once a topic has been hugely politicized, where people now internalize the answer is a reflection of their of who they are, of their identity, this sort of identity psychology can be very difficult. There are strategies for doing that, but I think the before one talks about that, we can simply say that we already have enough people in this nation who understand this is a big problem that needs to be addressed. And I think the I think the game at this point is not so much trying to move the unmovable, but the game is trying to get our political system to start to reflect the actual opinions and attitudes of the population. And so those of us who understand that this is a problem need to really start behaving like it's a problem. Uh, and I and uh, pushing back very hard on our pol- politicians as one aspect of our response, uh, who refuse to accept us. And I think that's certainly true here in Utah. Uh, you need to. We all need to know who our representatives are, who our state senators are, and we need to push back on those that refuse to accept this as a problem. Let me uh, read this letter. I've been advertising this, and it came in early, so I apologize to Mr. Singer. James Singer is running for Senate. I didn't know that until he tweeted us. So, uh, and and uh, you know we have to be careful it's, and, and it's give. Early, right. and it's early. It's <laughs> early. It is very early. Uh, we need to. That's that's true. We're <laughs> we're way out, aren't we? Um, the, the same time we need to you know give all people equal uh, coverage. So, if you're running for an office, you are welcome to uh, to tweet at us as well. So here's what uh, James Singer says: Statement on the Paris Climate Agreement. Dear friends, today President Trump let down Americans and our neighbors across the world when he decided to pull the United States out of the Paris Climate Agreement. These actions prove that he's unwilling to do the minimum necessary to protect the ecological safety of the planet and the people who inhabit it, the generations who will come after us. Global climate change is a very real issue for humanity and is something we cannot postpone addressing any longer. As I learned of the President's decision to retreat from the battle of climate change, I thought of my indigenous brothers and sisters across the world who feel the effects of climate change first and hardest and who stand on the front lines resisting. There is no reason why in 2017 we do not have environmental sustainability in tackling global climate change as central tenets in how we govern and make policy. I was also severely disappointed that the president attempted to defend his decision with falsehoods and statements based on imagination instead of facts. It is clear that the duty to defend environment rests not with the president or the EPA, but squarely upon our shoulders, the shoulders of the people. We must rise at this moment and uh, prove that we care about our air quality, our rivers, our public lands. We must stand to secure a planet that can continually sustain human life. We must reduce our carbon emissions and average global temperatures. We must work hard to invest in sustainable energy infrastructure and secure good jobs. We must join and support environmental causes and keep the spirit of activism alive so we can make meaningful changes. Today is our time to rise. In solidarity, James Singer. Uh, so thank you for that, uh, James. And he tweeted at us. Um, you can as well, at UPR Access. You know, uh, James raises, I think, something very important. Is that the facts that impacts are ongoing across the, uh, the world as we speak. Some of them are uh, minor. Some of them are quite significant here in the United States as well. Some of them are al- already catastrophic for some people in some places. Um, and... It's with respect to the United States remaining as a as a as an entity, as a society, as a nation, and taking the lead on addressing this. I think one point often doesn't get made, and that is historically speaking, if you cumulatively speaking, from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution a couple of hundred years ago, the United States is the nation responsible for the single largest chunk 
of our carbon em emissions. About 26% of the anthropogenic, human-caused uh, carbon emissions over the last 200 years have been generated by the United States. And so we bear the single largest responsibility for the impacts that are happening planet-wide. And I think just as a nation, to acknowledge that is incredibly important uh, in terms of our standing uh, within the world uh, as well. And, you know, I, I think oftentimes we hear people talking about freedoms and infringements on freedoms, but uh, not always hear the talk about responsibility. So we have derived tremendous benefit from the burning of those fossil fuels, uh, and but we have also now, it turns out, uh, inflicted quite a bit of damage. And we need to stand up as a nation, not piecemeal as cities and as states and as businesses, but as a nation and say we accept our responsibility in this uh, global issue. Do you, uh, do you worry, uh, Dr. Davies, that uh, this withdrawal from, by the U.S. will encourage other nations to withdraw from the agreement? I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, now, there's no, been no indication of that. Uh, uh, quite the opposite, I think the... Uh, the reaction from the international community has been a redoubling of resolve mm -hmm. uh, to move forward. And you mentioned it just before the last break. Uh, there's there's more than just altruistic reasons here. Um, there are solid economic reasons. You mentioned California, somewhere between the sixth and the tenth largest economy in the world, depending how you do your bean counting. Um, by far the most aggressive uh, carbon reduction plan within the United States uh, as a state, and their economy is absolutely booming. So this notion that uh, moving towards low-carbon uh, uh, low carbon emissions is destructive to an economy is um, not really based in observational fact. Is it, is it possible to move to a low-carbon economy in an economically disastrous fashion? Certainly. But a lot of empirical evidence from around the world, including enormous powerhouse economies like Great Britain and Germany, suggests that it's not necessary, and in fact, quite the opposite. You can um, move very aggressively towards decarbonization and use that move uh, as a as a boom to your economy, as California, Great Britain, Germany, and many other nations, China now and India, are doing. I want to follow up with that. Uh, California, you could say, California's a little easier there. It's not coal country, maybe harder to, to, to move as aggressively if you're if you're West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania. You know, the number of, uh, th th that's a good point, the, the number of uh, jobs that are dependent on the coal industry has been um, greatly, I think, exaggerated. Uh, something like fifty to 80,000 jobs nationally now uh, are dependent on coal. Uh, many times that number of people work at Starbucks. Uh, so, um so the the notion that said, I don't want to diminish the um, the impact to these communities. And but again, uh, it from a public policy standpoint, one needn't move forward without considering those communities. We can move forward and at the same time understand certain communities will be impacted particularly harshly and build that into our response. And we know how to do that. Smart people have been uh, laying roadmaps for this for quite a long time. Your previous guest earlier today suggested this uh, part of the fee and dividend plan is to return the money to the American public. And, and there are pieces of the American public that get more back because they are more adversely affected, such as uh, fossil fuel extractive communities. We just have a couple minutes left in the program. I want to get this uh, email in from Carl. Carl says, I support the Paris Climate Accord. 
and believe climate change is the greatest threat to humans and the earth. The Trump administration is going to set us back 10 or 20 years. I insulated my house, updated the lighting, and added insulated windows. I zero-escaped a large portion of my yard, invested in battery-powered yard equipment, and I bike to work every day. I'd be thrilled if Utah would do more about climate change, but our state government are deniers. It's going to be up to the citizens to change that. Thanks for that, uh, Carl. So we just have about a minute left. Rob Davies, uh, final comments on this. Well, Carl's uh, comments are, are a good jumping-off point. He said the, the uh, this move is going to set us back uh, 10 or 20 years. The um, I don't dispute that. The trouble is we don't have 10 or 20 years to, to be set back. The climate system is complex. Uh, it contains likely tipping points. So once you pass a certain level of carbon pollution, um, changes are in place that are essentially not reversible. There's a great deal of physics to suggest that that's true. We don't know exactly where those lines are, but we know that we're getting closer. And so from a risk management standpoint, um, you just don't want to go there. And the, the modeling suggests that we are within a couple of decades of crossing some of those lines, uh, possibly less than a decade. And so, um, so I agree with Carl that uh, and previous uh, responders that it now the, the next move lies with the citizenry who are solidly behind moving on climate action and now we need to make our voices heard so I would say if, if any of our listeners can do one thing today is to talk about this issue we need to talk about it with our friends with our colleagues with our families certainly with our policymakers. Uh, there are all of those moves that we make inward such as Carl suggested but we also have to make moves outward this is a, a societal problem that needs to be solved uh, collectively Rob Davies, physicist uh, here at USU, has been with us in studio, and we've had previously Greg Bertelson, Senior Vice President with Climate Leadership Council. Thanks, Dr. Davies. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. We'll be uh, asking you what your summer plans are, giving you some suggestions. Our summer preview program, that's tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org.